Hey everybody, this is Warm Regards, a dialogue between the climate scientists, newsmakers, journalists, and people on the front lines of climate change. I'm Eric Holthouse here in Tucson, Arizona. As we're recording this, it is actually still raining in Houston. This is day five of Hurricane Harvey, and um, we are seeing something that a week ago, you could not have paid me <laughs> enough money, honestly, to to um, to say what we've seen now would be realistic, and yet it still happened. So um, I think, you know, there are a lot of meteorologists like me that are just sort of with a mouth open pretty much constantly for the last couple of days. Um, and not to mention um, the the impact this is having on the fourth largest city in the United States. I mean, it, this is going to be something that um, is going to redefine uh, what normal is like for this entire region. Um, it's going to be a national tragedy. It already is a national tragedy. Um, this is the worst natural disaster in American history as far as dollars. That's what the predictions are looking like right now. So it's so just sort of to the point where I don't really know what to say, honestly. Um, a few hours ago, weather station in the southern part of the metro area officially passed the record for the rainiest tropical storm or hurricane ever recorded in the continental United States. So we're talking about totals of 50 inches in a span of five days. Um, that is... Uh, that is more than double the previous wettest month in Houston's history. So there's just absolutely no precedent for anything like this ever happening in Houston before. Um, <laughs> yeah, so with that as a, as a prelude, um, we're just going to try to get a very short glimpse of, of what, um, what our initial thoughts are uh, on, on this storm and, and maybe where... Um, where Houston is going to go from here and the, and the social context to the storm. And, 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 you know, since we're a climate change show, we're going to talk about climate, climate change too. So Jacqueline is out today, uh, but joining us to discuss this remarkable record-breaking disaster is Andy Revkin, journalist for ProPublica. Hey, Andy. Good to be with you. Yeah. And we also have uh, today, uh, our special guest is Marshall Shepard, director of the Atmospheric Sciences Program at the University of Georgia and former president of the American Meteorological Society. Thank you for joining us, Marshall. Hey, thanks for inviting me. Yeah. Um, so, you know, like, like, like me, um, Marshall, I think that you have been really unable to take your eyes away from, from what is happening in Houston and along the Gulf Coast. Um, can you get us caught up with, with what, the, what it looks like right now? Yeah, well, as of about four four o'clock Eastern time, it looks like the good news, if there is a sliver of good news, is that uh, for for Houston at least, it looks like the rain is starting to wind down. And as we were talking about earlier, that that's an even more optimistic view than perhaps even eighteen to twenty four hours ago, when it looked like perhaps more rain would linger around through Wednesday. So I think they'll start to wind down. Some of the heavier bands have moved eastward, though. So I think Louisiana and parts of uh, that Bayou area, area in New Orleans should certainly keep their guard up. But at least, and this is odd for me to fix my mouth to say it, but at least the good news is there will be not much more rain dumped on top of that four feet of rain that Houston now has. Wow. That's just odd. I don't know that I thought I would ever say anything like that, but you know, 50 inches of rainfall. And scarily, Eric, as you well know, 
the models sniffed this out. If you were looking at some of the models, uh, you know, prior to the event, some of the models were talking about four to six feet of rainfall. And I'm sure many meteorologists were looking at the models saying, yeah, right. But, you know, in some cases, the lower end of some of that really is bearing mm-hmm. out. Yeah. Ten days ago, I saw uh, someone posted a little bit ago a model output from 10 days ago that looked almost exactly like what actually happened. So we have, um, you know, it's it's hit or miss sometimes, but most more often than not these days, we have really, really good tools at our disposal. And I think maybe the first thing we should talk about is what happens when you have a forecast like that? How do you talk about it? Um, how do you use the English language to describe what is going to happen when you have a pretty high confidence in such a amazingly extreme event um, that that's going to play out in the coming days. How do you convince public officials to take the appropriate action if you are the person, if you are the meteorologist with the information that you feel like can save lives if it's if it's handled in the right way? I mean, I know that you've been talking about this a little bit this week, Marshall. But what 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 do you think? What do you think is what do you think is what we, what can we learn from from this going forward? Well, I think there are a couple of things, and, and Eric, as you know, I've written about this before in Forbes. I think one of the challenges with this particular, actually, I think there were two or three key communication challenges or messaging challenges, and I'd certainly love to hear your and Andy's thoughts on this as well. But one, I think there was the challenge that this is an area that's already very flood prone and they're sort of accustomed to flooding. And so I think you have this notion that people feel like they probably have seen an event like this before. They've seen an event. And so, oh, it's, you know, we'll we'll just kind of weather it. Uh, We saw a little of that with the Baton Rouge floods in 2016 as well. But as I've written before, and I talked to some sociologists, communications folks, and some psychologists, people have a hard time putting into context their own personal experiences relative to an anomaly event. So in other words, yeah, they may have experienced rain or extreme flooding, but they haven't experienced this. This is an anomaly event. And so any sort of previous context or experience is irrelevant to an event like this. Uh, there's also something called optimism bias. People just always feel like, you know, even though this is happening, uh, they'll they'll get through it. They can probably drive through that roadway to get to their kid at the daycare and we'll be fine. So that's one element. Another kind of element that I've been talking about and some of the other colleagues in the field have been is this notion that you had really a phase A, phase B event. You had a Category 4 hurricane making landfall near Corpus Christi. Uh, essentially devastated Rockport and some other areas. That in itself is a major story, but it's the normal story. It's the story that the public and media is used to covering. Hurricane making landfall, storm surge in the right front quadrant, uh, winds of a certain amount. I think we kind of are on a, have an inertia of how those are covered, and I was noticing this as people were interviewing me. However, I think people were not grasping the fate that Phase B was going to be equally devastating, but from a completely different perspective perspective. And so I, I just noticed some challenges in communicating phase A, phase B of the storm. So, you know, perhaps I'll stop there and maybe let you and Andy react to that as well. Yeah, this the, the inland thing just seems to consistently uh, be a tougher one. I, I don't know if that's that's generally true, even heavy rainfall events more generally, whether it's, uh, I just was interviewing people in around Baton Rouge today by phone, not, I'm not there, about 
how that played out in the context of what's happened in Houston. And, and, and by the way, a lot of those communities are already softening their regulations again toward uh, like building. That's a whole nother thing. Not just sort of the response to the emergency, but the, the response to the actual event itself has this kind of weird um, short-lived aspect. Andy, in, in, in your reporting um, with people there in the field, are they thinking of this as something that's sort of like a new normal, like talking about climate change at all? Or are they thinking of this is just a freak thing that happened um, and, you know, we're resilient, we'll rebuild, you know, the same sort sort of story that we've heard a long time. Yeah, there's a whole team of people, Texas Tribune and ProPublica people reporting, who will be reporting for weeks to come in the field on what's going on. Um, it's too early. I think it's still, you know, it's still unfolding in many ways. So it's, it's too early to get those feelings from people who are mostly just still kind of in that, um, um, you know, state of uh, shock. And, and as far as officials and, and talk about climate change, I guess I still worry, um, even setting aside the climate change debate, whether, again, thinking about what I'm hearing from Louisiana, this there's just such a short... Uh, attention span. I've written about this concept called disaster amnesia, you know, where it's like, how how in the world could communities around Baton Rouge already be, uh, that what they did there, one thing they did there was that they, um, uh, they're not using last year's rainfall as their flood of record for their, where they set their regulation for building, you know, higher than that, because it was mm -hmm. an anomaly. <laughs> I don't know. It's That's just kind sort of, of like a cognitive dissonance <laughs> of this actually even happening. Like it's such a tragic, uh, traumatic experience that it seems like collectively you just sort of block it out of your memory. Yeah, I, I think so. I, I will say that I have been a little hesitant to dive too, uh, you know, dive straight into the pool on the discussions of climate change. Although certainly I understand um, that there are several factors related to climate change that probably are contributing to you know, events like what we're seeing. Here. In fact, there was that study on the Baton Rouge uh, flooding in 2016 that said that there was a 40% likelihood that climate change contributed, 40% chance that that storm happened because of climate change. And I, I, I suspect that we will see attribution studies. We're in an era even of what's called rapid attribution studies. Um, I, I served as a co-author on a National Academy's report last year that I, I think still kind of the state-of-the-art report on where the science is on attribution. And of course, with hurricanes themselves, you know, they kind of fell into the middle category in terms of uh, impact of climate change on, on hurricanes because of uncertainties about perhaps frequency, but some certainty about it, uh, attribution and warming of the oceans. But Andy, I think your point is valid. This is not, this is not necessarily a, a tropical cyclone hurricane climate change attribution. This is also uh, a, a, an extreme rainfall study. And clearly, clearly the peer reviewed literature has shown us that uh, the top one, two percentile uh, rain rate events are increasing since the 1950s. Um, uh, we know about the acceleration of water vapor and this notion of a warmer climate system, uh, increasing evaporative rates and making the water vapor available. Uh, if you hear that little ding every now and then, that's my email popping in with reporters, <laughs> so I'm popping in asking questions, so I apologize. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think that these discussions definitely need to be had. Um, you know, I've even seen some discussions swirling around because the reality of this particular event, Harvey, and I'll, I'll kind of state this and then we can discuss, is that one of the reasons we saw so much rainfall is that this storm made landfall and then parked itself on the coast because of the 
steering cone. So the meteorology, the, the synoptic patterns were not conducive to shoving this thing along. Now, you know, I've even seen some chatter on colleagues like Kerry and Annual and others that are talking about long-term changes and weakening recently of steering currents and steering patterns. Uh, I, I'm not uh, informed enough on those to kind of say what, what the kind of consensus is or whether that's been published, but I think these the conversations need to be and should be had. I, I've just tried to focus my attention in the short term on sort of the, the immediate hazard just because uh, the humanitarian side of me was just really concerned about what was unfolding. And as, as Andy said, frankly, yeah, it's still going on. I mean, it's still raining. Yeah. Um, that's what we said in our intro. Um, I think that it's actually really important to mention that those connections to climate change that we are pretty certain about early on in the event, in the event so that people can have that discussion while the hazard itself is still for forefront in your mind. Um, because as we've seen so, so many times, way too many times, if you wait until the event is over and people are sort of moving on to the next phase in the news cycle, you miss that opportunity to talk about the, the most critical question that we have in our era right now, which is how are we going to deal with climate change? How are we going to deal with a world that is going to be sort of a fundamentally different atmosphere than what we have right now? Um, that that sort of resets the playing field in so many parts of 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 what makes up civilization. To be frank, I mean, this is something that these are really hard questions um, and they're really uncomfortable. But it doesn't mean that we shouldn't have them. And right now is the is is the time. I think I think we all have the bandwidth to have that discussion in con in combination with everything else that's having that's going on this week um you know talking about recovery talking about the president's visit today to to texas talking about how many people are being saved you know this the those success stories of of neighbors helping neighbors and taking inflatable rafts and rescuing nursing homes and all that is such an important part of the story because when you see communities band together in the midst of of what feels like such an overwhelming disaster that shows you sort of the best part of humanity. And I think that that's the kind of story that needs to be told about climate change too. We need to start thinking about how are we going to band together to work on behalf of all humanity and make sure that events like this can be prevented if possible. Yeah, I would echo. Yeah, I, I, I wrote a piece recently in my blog and forward talking about the fact that we need to move more into stories rather than sort of showing the latest trend line and global map with a bunch of red and blue colors. I just, I just think that just does, in my own view, uh, doesn't resonate with the people we're trying to reach. I mean, it resonates with people like us, but I don't think it resonates. And it just, oh, yeah, there's another map. I mean, I, I think people generally can get you know, data and map and trend line fatigue. So, but when we see stories like that, and I, you know, like I said, I'm not averse to talking about the sort of climate aspects of this, uh, and I certainly will in the days ahead. Um, you know, like I said, in, in the in the 24th hour after the storm made landfall, I had reporters call me about it, and I just frankly didn't want to talk about it then because I was more concerned about, you know, this poor mother on the roof with her kid. Um, so, you know, I, I think that's right, that we do have to leverage the teach, teachable moment. Um, you know, I, I often do, and I mean, I've probably made different than, you know, maybe you, Eric, or you, Andy, I'm not sure, but, you know, I often do feel that sometimes, though, 
you know, I think we can hurt our our cause or credibility if we, you know, are throwing out sort of this event and then sort of saying it's climate, but then don't give a very clear understanding of what it is about the climate. Yeah, I think we all know that there are certainly things that are happening, warmer waters, um, uh, more capacity for water vapor, higher sea level, which makes storm sewage worse, uh, perhaps changes in intensity. I think these are all sort of general, general or generic things that we know to expect as our climate warms and changes, which we all know is happening. But in an event like this, I personally want to know specifically, you know, I think we are at a point now with the science, with these attribution studies, where we can give some specific detail on what aspects uh, of the storm were contributing. And so that's why I, I'm often uh, willing to let some of these attribution studies play out. But you did just make the point, because one of the things we got a question about after the National Academy's uh, study is, well, why do these rapid attribution studies need to be rapid? Why do they? Why do they have? To, why do we have to rush them? But I think your point is valid because the news cycle is very um, short and fickle. So um, we do need to kind of get that information out. And and it's you no know, these rapid attribution studies aren't junk science. They aren't like some of the stuff that you see on Twitter and other places. They are peer reviewed work. But I think that is the reason why they do aren't are needed to be rapid. Um, yeah, although it gets to be. Troublesome if if that then kind of short circuits having the broader uh, sort of broader constituency discussion right away about resilience and and what are the issues on the ground that led to outsized vulnerability let's say for uh, low income people or you know one of the the untold stories going forward is um, um, Kevin uh, Simmons who's an economist who studies weather disasters um, told me you know. The, the, the loss of human life here um, is a tragedy, although it seems a fairly low number so considering the size of the community. Right. But the um, he said there's going to be this real mega tragedy as, as tens of thousands of homeowners, uh, many of them lower or middle class, you know, maybe in their first home. And they go back and they realize that their homeowner's insurance mm -hmm. doesn't cover any of this and they don't have flood insurance. And they're, they're, that's he says people are going to lose their homes still owe their mortgage mm -hmm. and go bankrupt and it's that's going to be a devastating blow for um so we're going to have a huge community and and then of course there are renters the renters you know people who are really uh, low income uh they you, i guarantee you they don't have renters insurance if you're mm -hmm. if you're a struggling low income family and so everything you lose is a big chunk of your your yeah your so we're going to have to have that national discussion that's a policy discussion a political response and saying mm -hmm how much will the federal government help those people? And that becomes a major issue. You know, we have um, uh, an administration that's been hostile to, to science and, and climate science in particular. It's gonna be really interesting to see how they respond and, and if they support those, those families that are already at the margins of, of society, really, that have been left behind by this now you know, decade-long economic expansion, um, and now are going to have to start over with nothing. Um, do we do we abandon an, ent an entire American city um, be because um, just because the administration maybe doesn't want to spend the money? Um, they're trying to like score points in the news cycle or something like that's just such a shame i mean that should never happen these are americans just as america you know you know people in houston could be could be uh um 
you know, Washington, D.C. next year. It could be Seattle the year after that. And, you know, this could happen um, at, at any point to almost any city. And we, we need to, I mean, that's really what the role of a federal government is, is to, to pick up the parts of the country that are struggling at any given time, in my opinion. Yeah, I, w I would add to that. I, mean, I think that, you know, we saw some rollback of some of the Obama era uh, flood and infrastructure uh, policies in recent times. I think, you know, you know in, in retrospect, perhaps that's short-sighted. You know, you know I, I'll let the policymakers make those decisions. I, I would point out that there is another anthropogenic element to a flood like this that's beyond sort of the greenhouse gas fuel uh, warming and, and responses to the water cycle, and that is the sort of urban land cover, uh, massive urban development, and you know, unfortunately, Houston in some ways is probably, and frankly, the city I live in too, Atlanta, are poster childs for sprawl, and you have this sort of ever-expanding urban and urban impervious uh, footprint uh, coupled with you know, stormwater design and, and stormwater engineering in cities that assume stationarity, which is that rainstorms in 27 are going to look like rainstorms in 1970, uh, you have a, a dubious equation that mm -hmm. leads to more flooding. I mean, I often say it's not just what falls from the ground, it's what falls up from what falls from the sky, it's what falls on the ground, how the ground responds to it, and how we've engineered cities to handle it. And so I think there, that's another anthropogenic impact that, you know, exacerbates flooding now and in the future uh, that we certainly mm -hmm. do not want to. Yeah, the story that I'm following this morning, I was up at, um, at 2 a.m. with, uh, with my, um, with my 11 month old this morning and, you know, checking Twitter and finding out that the, um, the major reservoir, uh, flood protection reservoir in Houston is now over overtopping. I mean, it, it, it's, it was never designed to handle a storm like this. It was designed for a thousand year rainfall event and it's now um, overflowing its banks through the emergency spillway. And nobody knows what's gonna happen next because this has never happened before. So we have infrastructure that was built 70 years ago that has to withstand the climate of 2017. Um, in a, in a neighborhood now that there's been infill um, suburbia all around these um, these reservoirs that are uh, that is now you know right in the <laughs> right in the middle of the city so um, it's gonna be it's gonna be a really sort of a, a, an example for decades to come honestly the impacts of of what's going to play out over the next months and years in Houston. Um, and Marshall, I know that you have to go. So if you have any final thoughts, um, we can, uh, we can do that. Sure. Yeah. Thanks. I, you know, I just want to again, thank, thank you. And um, Eric Mack, I know he's behind the scenes as a fellow Forbes contributor of mine. Uh, and also Andy Reckon, uh, you know, for having this dialogue and for this format, I think it's very needed. Um, this is an event, you know, a couple of key points that I'd summarize. This is an event that from the meteorological forecast perspective uh, was well understood. Uh, there should be no headlines out there that say um, uh, that came without warning or we didn't know where the storm was going or we didn't have time to do certain things. I think that's, that was not the case. Uh, I would say that it really illustrates the ongoing challenge that we have, as Andy Repkin alluded to earlier, with 
communicating or articulating rain-related threats or flood threats. I've even thrown into the atmosphere just to, to provoke discussion the notion of whether, A, we need to have some kind of a rain or flood scale similar to the Saffir-Simpson scale or the Fujita scale, or B, do we need to start de-emphasizing scales in general like the Saffir-Simpson scale because people get so locked into, oh, it's only a tropical storm or, oh, it's category three, uh, when it really is the impact. So I think the, arguably the most impactful storms that we've seen in Houston yeah. were tropical storms. Harvey, mm -hmm. Harvey, now and Allison. Uh, so I think this mindset does still exist that uh, if it's not Cat 2, 3, 4, uh, perhaps there's a different level of alert to it. So I think that's certainly something we need to think about going forward. And then this con this notion of um, you know psychology perception and consuming of the message by the public. I think there's. The, I mean, there. I, I am of the belief that you know we we can only lead a, the horse to so much the water. We can't make them drink too. So I, mean, I think there are things that we are bad at and we need to improve at in terms of the weather enterprise side of the house too. But you know, I, I think we can't rack our heads and beat our heads up too much. Yeah, thanks, Marshall. We really appreciate your 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 views. Keep on doing what you keep doing. And that's our show. If you like what we're doing here, please tell a friend. And as always, feel free to hit us up with your thoughts on future guests, show ideas, or pretty much anything. Our email address is ourwarmregards at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at ourwarmregards. For Jacqueline and Andy and our producers, Eric Mack and Jesse Ann Baines and our guest, Marshall Shepard, I am Eric Holthouse. Thank you for listening, everybody.